Good morning. Our scripture text this morning comes from the book of Exodus. I'll be reading chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And if you're following along in the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 59. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Raphidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Well, here we are at the end of summer, and uh, as I say, folks are squeezing out one last vacation. Kids are back to school, and here at Grace Baptist Church, our fall ministry schedule is about to kick off. And I don't know about you, but this whole summer to me has been a blur. I, uh, I took the time this week to look back in my calendar at June, just the month of June 2023, just to remind myself about all of the things that I did three short months ago. And let me tell you, it, it might as well have been three years ago. Because uh, it, it felt that distance to me, distant to me as I was reading through what I did. Events that I had looked so forward to. And events that as I was experiencing them, I so enjoyed, are now long gone and forgotten. Th- that's the case. And they've quickly faded into the, the blurry background that is the past. Thankfully, my eye calendar has a much better memory than I do, so I can go back and reflect on some of these things. But you know who else is forgetful? The people of Israel. We, we catch up with them today, still in their wilderness journey, but a little bit further along. They're at a spot called uh, Rephidim, and we find them yet again grumbling and complaining and quarreling. Why? Well, because there's no water at this particular camp. Now, this is very much related to the problem that they had last week that we looked at. Then, they had nothing to eat, and now they have nothing to drink. Those are very related kinds of problems. And they've appeared to have completely forgotten 
about how the Lord solved their previous problem in such a gracious and such a glorious way. Do you remember? Again, this might be a blur to you. This was just last week, but quail dropping out of the sky, manna from heaven every morning to be collected. They forgot. They seem to have forgotten that glorious solution almost immediately. So even at Rephidim, God is providing for them this manna every single day. Even as they're complaining, they're picking up manna, grumbling about water. The next big problem on their radar. And these people have had water problems before. Do you remember Mara at that place? The people encountered non-potable water. There was water there, but it was contaminated at the source. It was, it was so contaminated. It was bitter. It was totally undrinkable. That is until the Lord their God directed Moses to a log, to a tree that had fallen, which he rolled into the reservoir, and instantly that water became sweet. And then from there, they went to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water. You forgot about that, didn't you? Well, so did the Israelites. And once again, they're bellyaching about water, seemingly oblivious to the fact that the God who is leading them is the Lord over the water. We've seen that. They've seen that time and time again. He's proven that to them at the Nile. He's proven uh, that to them at the Red Sea. He's proven that to to them at Mara and at Elam time and time again. This Lord that is leading them is Lord over the water. And this just in the space of a couple of months. You know, thankfully Moses gives us a a time reference at the beginning of Genesis chapter 16, which lets us know that we're still within the space of, I don't know, a month and a half, maybe two months after the Exodus. So not even as far back as June from the perspective of September 10th. In, these, in the people's minds, these miraculous, momentous, life-saving events are all long gone and forgotten. What's the issue here? Is our propensity to forget, is that simply just a function of our frailty? Is that just kind of like a a, a cautionary tale about our human limitations? You know, something that I'm discovering really come to the fore in your mid-40s, you know, um, just your mind starts going. When, when he was my age, my dad would always, he was fond of saying, I have a good memory, but it's short. And uh, he'd say that over and over and over again, thus, you know, proving the point. <coughs> and now I totally get that. I understand that because that's what's happening. But is that what's happening here? Is this just your standard forgetfulness because the mind starts to go a little bit in middle age? No, I don't think so. I think it's more nefarious than that. 
Yes, there, there is such a thing as forgetfulness as a function of human weakness, but there's also such a thing as forgetfulness that is a function of human willfulness. A person can forget something because of, say, dementia, but they can also forget something deliberately. And I believe scripture wants us to understand that Israel's forgetfulness and ours was actually down to their faithlessness. Their faithlessness. Their water problem, in other words, is essentially a hardness issue. Not so much with the, the water and that it needs to be softened, but their hearts need to be softened. I want you to try to track with me here. And perhaps I can give you an illustration that might help, even though this illustration is going to kind of require you to think outside of comfortable categories. Okay, so let's take your wedding anniversary, for example, if you happen to have one. My calendar reminded me that I attended two different wedding anniversary celebrations in the month of June. One was my, my parents' silver anniversary, and one was Ron and Sheila's 40th anniversary. And those were wonderful. But the question here for us is, why do so many men, and, and we're beginning right here with me today, why do so many men forget their anniversaries? Either entirely, or they, for, they you know, kind of put it off and forget until the very last minute so last minute that even the stores are, are closed and you got to resort to the dollar store or whatever. Now, we often put that down to a simple memory problem, right? And that's the comfortable justification. I, I pull that one out. I use that. It works very, very well for me to be able to sleep at night. But men, listen, do you allow the possibility that your propensity to forget your anniversary is not primarily an issue with your head, but with your heart? I mean, if you truly loved your wife like she ought to be loved, if you saw your marriage to her as essential and as life-giving as it actually is, then my guess is that we wouldn't need any kind of prompting to, to remember to celebrate it. Okay, so you wonder how the people of Israel can be complaining about anything related to water when they've just very recently seen the Lord work in all kinds of miracles having to do with water. Well, the various biblical authors help us to understand these people and us and what exactly is going on. So, for example, Asaph in Psalm 78 here he is saying that the Exodus generation was a people who, quote, forgot God's works and the wonders that he had shown them. Not because they had Alzheimer's, but because they were, quote, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to the Lord. And then in Psalm 95, we have an explanation of the events of Exodus chapter 17, our passage today. And this explanation 
is picked up by the author to the Hebrews and applied to us. It goes something like this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. You see what's going on here? It's not just a, a lapse of memory. This is hard-heartedness. So please, uh, sorry for the long introduction, but I just want to be sure that we're clear on what our actual problem is. And the potential for misunderstanding on this is, is quite large because the presenting problem is, is very different from the actual problem. This, present, this passage is presented to us like there's a water problem. But I contend that Meribah is not about a lack of water. It's about, it's about a lack of knowledge of God. The same thing is true in our lives. You know, at different stops of the journey, it may look like the, the presenting problem might be our, our finances or our health or our singleness or our spouse. But these, I submit to you, are not our actual problems. Yes, they loom large, and that's what gives, uh, we give them the bulk of our attention, but those are not the fundamental problems. Our actual issue is our hard and unbelieving heart. It's our failure to retain the, the kind of knowledge of God that is going to make us totally rely on him and trust him in everything. And so in the time that I have remaining here, I want to just highlight three attributes of God that we are prone to deny in the midst of difficulty. And remembering these, truly believing these, and believing in them, living in the light of them, this is going to keep our hearts soft and keep our hearts steadfast before the Lord. And so I've, I'll, I'll point out, uh, as God enables, uh, these three attributes of his that will be for our endurance and our help. Consider first God's providence. God's providence. I guess it's best to start with a definition. And I can think of none better than the answer given to the Heidelberg Catechism question for Lord's Day 10. And here's the question. What do you understand by the providence of God? And here's the answer. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's the providence of God. All things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Man, if, if we could just believe that one sentence, all would be well. 
I, I recently discovered that YouTube has this feature where if you hover over the, the progress bar on a video, a graph will pop up and show you the most watched part of that video. I know you young people, we've been doing this I'm sure for months, maybe even years, but I just discovered it this week. And this is, this is the part of, of any video where the people that have watched it have given most of their attention. It's the part that they've fast forwarded through, that, that's an outdated term too, isn't it? Uh, to get to. This, this is what they think is the, the most important material. And, and you can believe them and skip to that part too if you want using this feature. Now, if we did that sort of analysis on verse one of chapter 17, I guarantee you that there would be a, a big spike at the end. So most interest is going to focus on the part where it says that there was no water for the people to drink. You know, that's a big spike. That, that's, what, that's what's getting people's attention. There's no water, no water to drink in this place. That's what the vast majority of people are going to be concerned with, our problems. But that means that most people would have skipped right on past the first part, and that would be a crucial mistake. We must never see our problems as disconnected from God's providence. So if you were to take your finger off the scrubber, you know, and just let the, force yourself to watch the whole clip, I think you would find that verse 1 actually sets forth God's providence as the all-important context to the people's problems. It says this, all the congregation of the people moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And this is not merely a geographical note. Okay, this is, it's not just thrown in there to kind of patch together these separate narratives. It's not just a transition piece to kind of get the next story going. Rather, this is a very important reminder to us that the people of Israel are being led by the Lord every single step of the way. Or as the verse puts it, maybe you have this in, in your translation, by stages, which is to say from one place to the next. They're moving according to the express will and purpose of God. Or again, as the text says, in accordance with his commands. The, by, by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And sometimes, I suppose, in direct revelation from God to Moses, Yahweh himself is leading his people in the wilderness. And he's doing so not capriciously, not by chance, but the Lord is leading with all that he is which is, as you well know, all wisdom, all knowledge, all power, all goodness. This, this is how the Lord is leading. And, and I think we saw the best illustration of this at the very beginning of the journey, where the Lord uh, 
he lets us in on, on something of his mind and what he's thinking about, how he's leading. And he's, he's deliberately choosing to lead the people the long way around because if they were to go the more direct route, it would lead them by the Philistines. And the Lord knew that that would be for their discouragement so early on in the voyage. It might be uh, for their defeat. So we understood then what, what we forget so quickly, which is that God's providence is, is not always easy, but it is always best. It is always best. And, and we can never doubt that God is leading us in such a way as is for our good and for his glory. It's also very important to notice and to remember something about this sovereign who is governing us as his creatures. He's not doing this as a cold, distant despot. Rather, as the Heidelberg Catechism answer reminds us, the hand of providence is a fatherly hand. Okay? The hand, the hand that leads Israel is the same hand that has redeemed them and has brought them out of the land of their slavery. In the same way, the, the hand by which we are led, that's the hand that has bled, that we might be his treasured possession. How utterly disgusting it is, then, for people who have been so loved and so led to say such a thing as what we read at the end of verse 3. It says the people are grumbling. It says they're quarreling in verse 2, which is a heightened sort of a word. We looked at grumbling last week. Quarreling is taking grumbling to the next level. And in their thirst, the people say to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? It's important that we would remember what we learned last week, which is that Moses understood this, and he tried to explain this to the people, that their grumbling and complaining and quarreling was not against him or Aaron. It was against the Lord. So to bring that understanding into this and understand that the people are actually accusing Yahweh of being a genocidal maniac. And if, if that wasn't bad enough, the, it, it, it's even more sadistic than that. They're, they're imagining this scenario that the Lord purposely led them out of Egypt for the express purpose of killing them and their children and their livestock. And all of this like, is adding up. How could you be so cruel? Your kids, you're, you're going to torture animals? They imagine that, that the Lord has deliberately done this in order to torture them with a slow, painful death of dehydration. What a wicked thing to think. What an absolutely gross thing to say about the God of providence. All things, including rain and drought, the Catechism tells us, comes by his fatherly hand. That is to say that he's good and he's gentle. He's a shepherd. He, not just when he makes us to 
to, to drink of the still waters that he leads us beside. It's not just when he's making us lie down in green pastures, but even when we're made to go through the valley of the shadow of death. He's good. He's, he's a good shepherd, and his rod and his staff, they comfort us. Let me just summarize what I'm saying because I, I want to be really clear about this. You know that it's a high crime and misdemeanor to take a Bible verse out of context, right? Or, or even to take a part of a Bible verse out of context. So when, when, you, um, when you're talking to someone and you're kind of pressing them a little bit on their, their lifestyle or whatever, and people don't like to, I don't know if you've discovered this, people don't like to be confronted about their sin. And so they might say something like, judge not lest you be judged. I, I don't know, I'm just pulling an example out of thin air. Have you, have you heard that one before? Well, you just kind of shake your head and, no, that, no, it doesn't, you can't do that, right? You know that that doesn't work. Well, in the same way, it's egregious when we take our problems out of context, out of the context of God's providence. You can't just say, there's no water at Rephidim. You have to say, the Lord has led me to Rephidim. You need to know, and, and I, I mean, you really need to know, and you really need to believe that, in the words of that great song of the faith, that whate'er befall you, he has led you all the way. Whate'er. That's a fancy poetic way of saying whatever. No matter what, he has led you all the way. And when you're faced with significant problems, ask yourself the more significant question. Can I doubt his tender mercies? Who through life has been my guide? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. And the strongly implied answer is, of course not. He's been so good. He's been so kind. He, all, all I've ever known is his grace and his mercy. He's never failed me once. Brothers and sisters, remember and believe in God's providence. Secondly, remember and believe God's power. God's power. A little bit earlier in the service, we sang these lines. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The hand of providence, the hand that leads us, is an omnipotent hand. We confess that our God is all-powerful. <clears throat> now, granted, the word power, you, you may have noticed, is not explicitly mentioned in the text. But the concept is certainly there. I want to show you it. And the symbol of God's power is certainly here. I'm referring to the staff in Moses' hand. That's the symbol of the power of God. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But before we get to that, just I, know, I want you to notice once again just how quickly people, these people are to forget. 
And again, they're forgetting not because of, of a problem with their, their brains, but because of a problem with their hearts. They're choosing to forget the fact that God has the power to, to do for them and be for them more than they could ever ask or imagine. They're, they're deliberately neglecting that truth. If they were to remember that, then the very next thing that we should have read after there was no water for the people to drink, the very next thing we should have read was, therefore the people hit their knees and fell on their faces and cried out to the Lord in prayer. Instead, they cried out to Moses. Not in prayer, but in petulance. They quarreled with him. They demanded, you give us water to drink. Now, that, that's interesting to me. And, and let me just say a word about that. So these are people who have willfully refused to believe in and to rely on the power of God. Now these people are demanding the power of Moses. Do you understand that the need for power never diminishes? It's not like the power goes, uh, the, the problem disappears. No, the problem just gets shifted. There's going to, if you're going to be able to provide water, there's going to be some, there's going to need to be some major input of power. Okay, you're going to have to produce it with some sort of, of power. But when you've rejected the divine power source, where do you turn? Invariably, you turn to your fellow man for solutions. But it should be patently obvious that, that mere man doesn't possess the power to solve your problem. But for some reason, that doesn't stop us. We, we reject the source of, of true power, but we still need power, and so we go demanding it from our fellow man. And that is loony when you stop and think about it in those terms. But that, that's what we do. And then we'll, we'll be demanding and we'll have completely unrealistic expectations on that person and that will always lead to quarreling and strife. Always, guaranteed. You're looking for mere man to do something that you should be looking to the Lord to be doing. And I want you to really think about this. And, and maybe the Holy Spirit will give you application into your own life. Just think about your life right now. Do you have any strife? Do you have any relational difficulties? Any friction going on? Let me ask you this. Can any of that be explained by the fact that you're looking for that person to provide for you, to do for you, to be for you what no mere mortal could ever provide or be or do, but that what God alone has the power to provide and be and do. Is that possible? And I submit that if you were to soften your heart to remember and to believe and to trust in God's power, it would have the added benefit of relieving all of the pressure that you've been putting on people that you have unfairly looked to as sort of power substitutes. 
these people that you're now ready to stone because they're not meeting your totally unrealistic expectations. Well, by the end of verse 3, the ball is squarely in Moses' court. And thankfully, Moses understands where to hit it next. So in verse 4, we find him immediately, instinctively, hitting his knees and falling on his face in prayer to the Lord. I want you to understand this, brothers and sisters, that prayer is the posture of a person who understands his own powerlessness. Prayer is the posture of of the person that knows the true source of power. When Moses says, what shall I do with these people? That's the cry of a powerless person. And the fact that he addresses that to the Lord is testimony to his belief that God is the one who has the power to deal with these people. And we, we could apply this by kind of approaching this from another angle. We could ask, we, we should ask ourselves the uncomfortable question, why is your prayer life basically non-existent? And now be honest, basically non-existent. And the answer would have to be, if you're honest, that you must you, you must believe that you've got this. You, you've got that snap song from the 90s as the soundtrack of your life. It's in your head. You know that one that goes, I got the power? And even though currently you, you have to admit that when it comes to this particular problem, uh, you could say it's getting, it's getting, it's getting kind of heavy, but you still believe that you've got the power to solve it. If, if you needed the Lord's help, you'd ask, and maybe you will, but as of right now, you don't, so you won't. And prayer is the position, prayerlessness, let me say, a lack of prayer, prayerlessness, is the position of power pretenders. Let's put it that way. Whereas prayer is the posture of the powerless. So by verse 5, the ball is squarely in the Lord's court, which is where it should have been in the first place. You have to believe that however the Lord is going to respond, it's going to be a display of his power. And the most obvious option, if, if you had to just, if we took a poll and just asked us how we think that this would end, the most obvious answer, option, I think, would be that the Lord would smite this particular people that he would just wipe them off the face of the map because this is what this is what should happen when a congregation of people are unbelieving and blasphemous god is holy and righteous and just he's of purer eyes than to even be able to look upon evil the kind of evil that blasphemes him in his face and calls him a genocidal maniac by rights Israel should have faced the power of God's wrath. Instead, they faced the power of God's grace. Which is, I think, the most potent matter 
known to man. More powerful even than his wrath is his grace. He's going to... He's he's going to give this ungrateful, forgetful people life-giving water. So so the Lord instructs Moses, he says, take in your hand the staff. All right, we're back to the staff. This is the symbol of the power of God. And you'll recall, it was just an ordinary shepherd's staff, but it was imbued with the power of God way back in Exodus chapter 4, which interestingly took place right here in the wilderness at Horeb. By the the power of God, this ordinary staff, when it was thrown down, became a serpent. And then when it was picked up again, it reverted to a staff. But more to the point, this is what Moses wants us to understand, more to the point, this is the same staff with, with which he struck the Nile, and through the power of God, the, the water of the Nile turned to blood, and thus the, the first plague. So do you see what the Lord is doing here with this history lesson? God's giving the people, through Moses, and through their elders, by the way, who the Lord wants to be up front and center so that there would, if this is going to be a test, then let's have, let's have some strong witnesses. He's giving them a brief history of his power a power that has been exercised towards his people right from the get-go. And from the first day all the way up until now. And now the power of God is demonstrated in this, that when Moses struck the rock at Horeb, out flowed a stream of living water for the people to drink and to drink till they thirsted no more. Listen to how Asaph describes this in Psalm 78. He, and by the way, he there in Asaph's rendering refers to the Lord. Moses is simply the agent. Says, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. So you've got the completely wrong image in your head if you're picturing this kind of like a little trickle of water. This is a a geyser. This is a a gusher. This is a demonstration of the power of God to provide for his undeserving but needy people. Now, it's it's hilarious to me. It's, it's It's quite sad, but it's also pretty funny for me to read commentaries by a whole bunch of scholars that try to give a sort of natural explanation of these events. Okay, so far too many of them say foolish things like, well, by striking this rock with his, with his staff, some, some shale broke off and, and exposed some, some veins of water that were always there, but were kind of covered until that. It's kind of like, you know, kind of what's happening that day that Uncle Jed is shooting at some food, and up come the ground, comes a bubbling crude. Same idea. But it's ridiculous because there is no natural explanation for this. This is a demonstration of the sheer power and grace of God. It's a miracle, and that's the point. But you know what's an even greater miracle? 
the power and the grace of God that shatters a stony, unbelieving heart. You'll have to forgive the pun here, but I'm always struck by the Christina Rossetti poem called Good Friday. And we read this from time to time on Good Fridays. And Rossetti uh, sets the stage in the first stanza. She says, am I a stone and not a sheep that I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross to number drop by drop thy blood's slow loss and yet not weep? You know, she continues to develop this theme. And it's one that we can all relate to, I believe, of just being cold and indifferent and unmoved at such a wonderful display of the love and grace of God in Christ. We tremble at the realization that our hearts could ever be so hard. But Rossetti closes on this hopeful note. Yet give not over but seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock. Greater than Moses, turn and look once more and smite a rock. This is good. The good news for you and for me today is that God's power is such that he can take that stony heart and make it issue forth life. He's able and he's willing to perform that miracle in your heart today. Perhaps some of you need that miracle for the first time. All your life, is, it's, it's all only ever been hard and cold and closed. But you need the power of God right now to break through that heart of, of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh so that you might see the beauty of Christ and that you might run to him and be saved. Or perhaps, like for the rest of us, Perhaps God might be pleased to once again chip away at the, the calcium that we've built up on our hearts by distrust and unbelief. And that he might do this to us by way of these reminders of his character and the kindness of his grace. Let, just let me say a brief word about a third attribute that I think will be helpful. I want you to notice, finally, that unbelief is going to tempt us to deny God's presence. This camping spot is going to be christened with a couple of new names. And this is going to be a memorial to the people's unbelief. Moses calls the place Meribah, which means quarreling. And it's also going to take the name Massa, which means testing. Do you know, in your wilderness journey, it's important for you to remember the peak. But, and here's something that you won't hear very often. It's also for you, important for you not to forget the valleys. Next week, Lord willing, our uh, beloved former pastor, Drew Corbett, is going to preach to us about the need for memorial stones for setting up Ebenezer's and rocks of remembrance. That's going to be wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, notice that Moses deems it important that the people remember how quickly they can Massa and Meribah. 
It's important for you to understand your own heart. Testing the Lord can take a variety of forms, but here's what it looked like for the Israelites. Verse 7 explains that they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What a, again, what a terrible, blasphemous thing to, to even question. Put the Lord to the proof. Prove your existence. Prove your presence here with us. When everything that they've ever experienced so far gives ample proof and, and evidence that God is near them. He's with them. He's, he's leading them in a pillar, for goodness sake. And every morning, well, that, even that first morning, that first evening, we saw last week from Ex- Exodus chapter 16, that that morning when they went out to collect the food, they saw the glory of God. They, they, they were aware of his presence among us. And now, as soon as they have a problem, they're going to let that call into question God's presence. I wonder if you've ever done that. You wonder, where are you, Lord? Where are you, Lord? And, and, and really all you mean by that is that you've got problems and you want them immediately fixed. Do you see that this is, this is the test, that the people wanted to, God to prove himself and the way that he was going to prove himself was just be, to give them what they wanted and what they needed. Do you have that kind of mindset when you approach God? Just give me what I need and then I'll believe in you. I'll, I'll know that you're here. That, that is putting the Lord to the test and it is wicked. Friends, the Lord is definitely present. Okay, and, and there's all kinds of evidence if you, if you look through the text, uh, especially in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Behold, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. He's actually, this is so gracious of God. He, he's actually, like, allowing himself to be, to prove himself to this pathetic people. He, he's going to actually submit to this test, and he's going to show them that he is present, that he's always with them, and that he's always ready to provide for them and to care for them and to meet their every need. We have, I know I need to wrap this up, but I can't do so without reminding you of Something that we looked at a couple of weeks ago at our membership extravaganza from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul helps us understand that the things that we're reading about here in the Old Testament, and, and maybe even especially in this chapter, are things having everything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul can even go so far as to say that rock, this rock in the wilderness, was Christ. And, of course, we don't have all of the time, and I don't certainly have all of the confidence to be able to try to elucidate all of the ways that that rock was Christ. But, but here's one thing that I know for sure, that God is present. And he, he is present in such a powerful way as to meet our deepest needs and our deepest thirsts. 
And, and the way that he proved that most especially was the giving of his son. The sending of his son to earth to dwell among us and to be present. To live for us. To, to live the kind of righteous, non-complaining, non-quarreling, non-testing life that we could never live. And then the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross and bears in his body on that tree all of my sin, all of my complaining, all of my quarreling, all of my testing, all of my blasphemy, all of my rank unbelief, the hardness of my heart is all put on Christ. And, and God the Father smites that rock. He is struck. He is bruised. For my iniquity so that I might be forgiven and I might be free. Do you ever doubt the presence of God in your life in the midst of your problems? Look to the presence of your Savior who is even right now present among his people. Yes, he is risen. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he has given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us to, to give us the strength to believe, to continue that work of softening our heart and helping us to fight sin and, and, and fight the, the encroaching hardness of our hearts. God is present in Christ, and so we, we look to him. Now, I'll close, but let me just close with this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I mentioned at the very beginning of this service that there's no possible way for you to be neutral leaving this place in a few minutes. You're either going to go from here trusting and believing everything that God is and has done, or you're going to go away disbelieving with uh, a greater degree of hardening in your heart. And the solemn warning that comes to you is today, if you've heard from the Lord in his word, if you've seen the glory and the power of God, especially in the face of Jesus Christ, then you need to respond in repentance and faith and belief. And if, if that's you today, if the Lord's leading you to um, repent of your sins, to put all of your trust in the Savior, if you'd like someone to just pray with you, then there'll be some folks here up at this front pew immediately after the service that would love to show you Jesus.